It's not until we sell a property that we discover exactly how good our decision-making was on the way in. If we make a gain, we feel that we've done really well, even if we never benchmark our gains or take the costs into account. If we make a loss, well, that's a pain we like to avoid if possible. It depends a lot on the individual circumstance and obviously property has high transaction costs, so it might not be beneficial to only hold for a relatively short period of time. But I thought from a a market perspective, the most commonly held bracket that we see here is this whole period of four to six years, and that's got a relatively high return of nominal gain. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as Download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Every quarter, CoreLogic puts a number on how many people have felt that pain. And today we're going to find out how many properties have sold at a loss in Australia in the second half of 2020. Eliza Rowan is the author of CoreLogic's quarterly pain and gain report and she's back with us today to discuss the key findings in the most recent release which looks at the December 2020 quarter and she'll also help us compare it with the September quarter data which might even give us a bit of a blueprint for how 2021 is likely to unfold. Thank you Eliza for joining us. You know how we love this report and we love chatting to you. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm glad that we've got loyal readers of this report and, and that it's of interest to buyers and sellers. I think I'm the most loyal, loyal reader, just quietly. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I do wonder whether Veronica's getting paid to recommend the report all the time. I'm not. I, mean, <laughs> I don't even <laughs> She mentioned that often. But, Eliza, I mean, 2020 was a big year for the world um, and if we focus on, say, the property market part of that world. The September quarter was really interesting because a lot of doomsayers and the banks and etc were predicting massive property falls but you know we didn't really see that in the results but sort of what happened in the December quarter? Was there a bit of a lag or were things better or worse? What, what were your findings? Well the December quarter in terms of the housing market definitely saw a more positive turn for owners and sellers. So the December quarter was where we started to see restrictions easing across Victoria and Melbourne, which created this pretty swift recovery in economic activity, consumer confidence, and that increase in consumer confidence in turn led to a lot more housing market activity. And during the December quarter, you had the um, the reduction in the cash rate to 0.1%. Mm. So this created a turn in values as well, which meant that in the December quarter, we got a higher level of sales volumes. Uh, sales increased about 24% uh, mm. on the September quarter. And within that, we actually saw an increase in the portion of properties that made a profit from resale. So 
Um, mm. The portion of uh, properties that made a profit was sitting at 89.9%, which was up from 88.3% in the September quarter and up further from what I would say was kind of the worst of pandemic conditions, which was in the June 2020 quarter. That's when we had the mm. stage two um, restrictions nationally and profit making sales was only 87.4%. So yeah, higher levels of activity, higher volumes and more profitability, which seems bizarre coming out of a pandemic, but there you go. But I think what's interesting as well is that the September data and, and obviously the December data as well shows actually how resilient the Australian property actually is, even though I'm lo- loathe to use that phrase, the Australian property market. What we want to sort of uncover here, there's some of the fundamentals that basically play out every single time and we'll get to those, but there's also the differences that we're seeing in this COVID world. And and one of those differences that I've noticed is definitely the regional markets performing differently to capital cities or better even. And that hasn't always happened, has it? No, it's not since, uh, I think it's been about 17 years since we saw a sustained increase in regional Australian dwelling markets that was outpacing the capital cities. Mm. And there was this sort of definite trend that emerged at first. It was, oh, maybe this is just cyclical because downturns don't hit regions as hard as they do capital cities, which are more volatile. But actually looking through some of the results in terms of, you know, value increases over the year, we've still seen that the combined regional market across Australia was up 9.4% in the 12 months Mm. to February compared to just 2.5% across the capital cities. So there was definitely um, something structural about COVID that created more demand um, and higher prices across regional Australia. Do you, do you actually know what happened in the early 2000s, like in that when you were saying that the regions were outpacing the capital cities? Uh, it's a bit before my day, but, I mean, do, do you remember what, what was happening then? Um, so I think it was a pretty broad-based upswing at the time and regional markets were, it, it, it wasn't quite the um, distinct um, uh, outpacing that, that we're right. seeing at the moment. Um, so it may have just been... Um, kind of an uplift of, of relatively low values or, or something like that. I'm actually, it, Maybe it, it was just the cities had run. See, I was around then. Um, <laughs> and um, it was 2004 to 2008, so I was checking out the graphs in your September report anyway. And um, and that was a period of time. Now, obviously I'm talking about Sydney then because I didn't really have a, a, a national lens yeah. the way I do now. And Sydney, 2004 was the first year of that downturn. You know, the market mm. peaked September 2003. So yeah. for 2004, 2005, in really to the beginning of 2007 it was pretty flat in fact yeah. in and and it really yeah it was i would say flat in certainly in the inner mm-hmm. areas and then it started taking off the beginning of 2007 and then it and then it petered out with the gfc um and then it took off again after that because of various stimulus but so i i would suspect maybe it's because well sydney and melbourne i think you've you've said is it, what's the proportion of dwellings that are sold it's really high isn't it 40 percent or something that if dwellings that are sold are in sydney and melbourne is that if I got that figure correct, Eliza? Yeah, that that's um that's roughly correct. They uh, would account for about forty percent of sales. So if you're going to have a downturn in in the those mm. two major capitals, then it might yeah. be because of that that the regionals did so well in that period of time. Is all I'm saying. 
anyway, we're not here to hear what I'm reminiscing about. We're here <laughs> to hear from you, <laughs> Eliza. So I'm interesting with the trend. I think that's interesting about transaction numbers because yeah. I wonder, like in the September quarter, for instance, would the overall loss-making percentage have been worse if Melbourne was not in lockdown? Potentially. I think that is a big part of what has kind of held stability in the Australian property market is that when there were these restrictions that created a severe economic shock, transaction activity actually came right down. Um, And I think part of that may have been because of the physical restrictions that were related to real estate transactions, you know, being unable to host open homes or on-site auctions. But I do think a lot of it came back to this idea that uh, when the market is in a downturn, people hold off from selling. And remember, people were enabled to hold off from selling because you had things like mortgage repayment deferrals, which meant that people who were really struggling didn't necessarily have to look to to sell. So absolutely, this whole COVID period has seen that even when you get those little circuit breaker lockdowns, you know, like we saw towards the end of 2020 and at the beginning of this year, transaction activity is immediately affected and is dampened by those periods of restriction. Uh, And then coming out of those restrictive periods, we tend to get vendors and buyers making up for lost time. And that's where you get a strong resurgence in particularly sales volumes um, coming out of those restrictions. And that's why we saw the big uplift in the December quarter, um, we saw more than a doubling of sales volumes across the Melbourne market from September to um, the three months to December. Mm. I think at the moment, the all the rental sort of rules around uh, evictions, you know, there was a moratorium that, you know, people couldn't get kicked out of their homes, I guess, that if they weren't paying their rent, um, et cetera, uh, there was this sort of, uh, you couldn't do it till March. And so even if you were an investor that, you know, was struggling and you wanted to sell, then um, and you had your tenant not paying and you're really struggling, it would have been hard to sell because, um, yeah, it's at that point in time, I guess, because you wouldn't be able to do open homes and, you know, you wouldn't be able to get a new tenant or sell it to an owner-occupier. So I think that also had an effect on really just didn't give the option to people to sell even if they really wanted to or needed to. Absolutely. And not to mention the fact that investor participation more generally had been quite low. Uh, particularly through the first half of 2020. And proportionally, uh, ABS data is showing that investment finance still only sits mm. at about 23% of the total portion of finance. So yeah. the the stuff that was selling really well, and you know, it's reflected in our pain and gain report as well, is that there was a higher incidence of profitability in the kind of stock that was preferable for owner-occupiers. Uh, mm-hmm. I think that's particularly reflected in the house in you story as well. Let's talk about that because that's really interesting. And I know we've often had this conversation before about the unit data is hard to separate new and, you know, new and old and townhouses and little units and all that sort of stuff. But even so, there's a really significant difference. And also I was looking at your charts and comparing it to when you were talking about, well, when we know about the oversupply or the flood of new stock and new commencements and new completions in, say, Melbourne, Brisbane and Sydney and even the ACT. And you can see the, the on the graphs when that divergence between the performance of on resale of apartments 
has really separated away or the actual mm-hmm. house sale mm. result, they've completely decoupled. Yeah. And that's really graphic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's really distinct across, I mean, I would say the mining regions as well, where you have a lot more investors playing in that unit space. So for example, in Perth, profitability in house sales was sitting at around 77% compared to less than half of unit sales. Um, And as you say, markets where we've seen particularly high levels of of supply of units recently, like the ACT, where you've, the ACT was actually the most successful in terms of profitability in the house segment alone, with more than 98% of properties of houses selling for a profit compared to just 85% of units. So, uh, yeah, there, there, there is a very distinct kind of difference there. And then in markets where you haven't seen as much development, particularly in some of the more inland regional areas, um, that's where you get a, a, a closer, um, a more synchronization of what's happening in the profits across houses and units. I think this apartment versus house story is so interesting and, and the visualisation of the data to, you know, I've, I've sort of got mm. over my my desire to see it all separated out, you know, for the established versus new, et cetera, et cetera. Because even with new properties, there's a delay, right? So then you have to have the release of new stock. People have to buy that new stock. Then they have to sell that new stock at a loss. And that's when it actually starts getting recorded, paying game report. And that's when you start seeing in the graph. So it's like, how long does that take for people to actually buy, hold, realize it's a bad investment and then sell it? Mm. But it is really fascinating to see that and just to see it over a you know a period of time now and what you can see on the sydney graph is that it's just started happening in sydney and is that the sort of conclusion you're drawing as well eliza you're you're the expert on the data side <laughs> yeah sydney's a really interesting one where we have seen more weakness in that market through 2020. But I think, you know, you you did also have that investment boom from 2014 to 2017, which has now started to see a bit of an overhang of supply. Um, the weakness across the unit markets at the moment is particularly through COVID, where we would traditionally see demand coming from overseas visitation, where around 80% of new arrivals to Australia are, are typically renters. So COVID has had a, an enormous shock on rental markets across Sydney. And in turn, that's created weakness in the investor segment of the rental market. So Mm. Parramatta is a good example uh, where there was a relatively high portion of loss-making sales in the quarter of about 17%. Um, And uh, yeah, just sort of, uh, I guess, generally those high-density investor markets that have seen more weakness through this period. But even on the housing market, Parramatta, I was looking at the data as well, which is interesting because I had pointed that out as a place, a part I wanted to talk to you about. The housing market seems to have really struggled there as well. I wonder if that's because, you know, in that Parramatta hype that was very prolific, you know, maybe five years ago, um, a lot of houses were potentially getting wrapped up in that 
and selling at decent prices and then potentially now they're selling like the housing proportion is really high as well if you'd notice that as well yeah for sure um i think the other thing about the sydney market that we're seeing at the moment is that it is really the high end that is leading um you may have seen recently we've reported that the sydney dwelling market is sitting at a record high value that was as of the 11th of march and that's really come off the back of the sort of top 10 to 20 percent of of, uh, property values across Sydney seeing this very strong increase um, yeah. off the back of a recent turn in the market. So it's really the northern beaches, the North Shore and the Northwest that are carrying a lot of that value increase. Um, whereas I think maybe some of the vulnerabilities in the economy and, and lower income households are starting to show um, a little in some of these results. I think you're right because they're giving a, a higher sort of uh, overall sort of figure and potentially people are reading the news and saying, oh, Sydney market's up. But if you look at if you've got a unit in Sydney or you're in some areas, it's not up, but some areas it's really gone up a lot more than what the data's sort of showing as a, as a sort of broad view. It's quite dangerous because a lot of people use that. Well, the Sydney market's only up 2% over the last four years. But if you look on the ground in, you know, some pockets, say the housing market in those suburbs, you, you know, those areas you spoke about, it's gone up a lot more than 2% two, 2% over the last four years, you know? Mm. <laughs> well, you know, uh, clearance rates cracked 90% the other week. So when are we releasing this? Sort of uh, two weekends prior to the release of this episode. <laughs> clearance <laughs> rates cracked 90%. That's pretty phenomenal. It's extraordinary. And CoreLogic recorded 100% clearance rate in the northern beaches off the back of 64 results, which I don't think I've ever seen that before. But it just goes to show the level of demand that's concentrated in those areas at the moment. Wow. What it also shows to me is how desperate buyers are. So I think that, Mm. you know, are 100% of the properties worth buying? No, you know, are they? And they probably all went for pretty decent prices because they all sold, you know, they all sold more than the reserve and what people probably wanted for them. and so I think when you see high clearance rates, it really shows the amount of fear and FOMO in the market where people are just willing to buy anything because, you know, as you know, Veronica, not 100% of properties are good, right? And so most of them <laughs> shouldn't be selling, um, you know, really because, you know, they're not really worth buying at those prices. So that to me shows just how much FOMO is in the market. Yeah, I think stock on the market is still pretty low as well. You know, we have Mm. started to see a bit of recovery in vendor activity, but across Sydney, the stock sitting on the market is still about 16% below where it was this time last year. Uh, So I think that exacerbates uh, the sense of urgency when people get to auction. And also the, the fear of missing out is not just fear of missing out on the property, but potentially this fear of if I don't get it now, it's only going to be yeah. more expensive yeah. in a few months time. That's the kind of environment we're in at the moment. And, and I think mm. that'll kind of ease by itself when, when we get to kind of a natural price ceiling and affordability constraint. Yeah. 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 True. It's interesting though that people talk about supply and demand and that's, let's face it, that's what underpins or drives the property market. And so we've got um, mortgage figures show around 43, 44% increase year on year. That was January mortgage figures. And then when I look at um, the numbers registering at auction in Sydney, uh, for there's two different sources that say basically over a year ago, about 40% increase in the numbers registered at auction as well. Mm. So, okay. So, right. Okay. So does that mean there's 40% more buyers in the market? Maybe, probably. And then have I ever seen 40% more stock come on the market? Never. 
you know, and maybe mm. in may well, when I say never, maybe in areas of massive oversupply where they can't get tenants, yes. But maybe in mining towns, yes. But generally <laughs> speaking, in established areas, you know, that are they're not subject to oversupply, do I ever see forty percent stock come on the market extra? No, never. So, you know, what's going to absorb these buyers? I wonder. You know, and and potentially it's prudential uh, intervention. Perhaps. I mean, I think it is also worth noting that through 2020, particularly for some of these more desirable areas, we have to think about the migration story. Um, We've heard anecdotes of people fleeing to lifestyle areas, but Mm. people in lifestyle areas who might end up going to closer to the city or um, moving for work actually aren't moving. So on top of that, you've got less people moving from, say, regional Australia to the cities um, or, or lifestyle areas. They're staying put and that's contributed to the relatively low portion of stock on the market. Um, in terms of <laughs> the APRA uh, interventions that are that are kind of being thrown around at the moment as a potential to slow market conditions, at the moment, we haven't seen any indication that there has been an increase in the risk in the lending space. Yeah, I think where this conversation gets a bit confused is that prices go up and people start to say, oh, the RBA has to do something or APRA <laughs> has to do something. <laughs> we have to remember housing prices aren't in the RBA's remit. And even for APRA, they're not necessarily looking at increased house prices. They're looking at a blowout in the portion of lending that's on interest-only terms or the portion of lending that has a high debt-to-income ratio or a loan-to-income ratio or the portion of debt that's on a um, LVR of greater than 80%. And at the moment, those figures, we we got the December results recently at at that time where the housing market did turn, value started to accelerate. uh, And those lending conditions were still in line with historic averages. So Mm. not a lot of concern coming from the regulator at the moment. That's so interesting because everyone, myself included, say, oh, this can't keep going. Oh, they'll have to step in and stop it. But I guess what you're saying is that that's not their problem. You know, the the market running away, unless it actually actually starts reflecting in in problems in, in, you know, borrowing numbers, ratios, et cetera, et cetera, um, that's, that's just that the market do what the market does. Yeah, I think what we're seeing at the moment is more a function of the fact that that money is just very cheap. And Mm. it is worth noting that, you know, some of these metrics did rise. Um, We saw that the portion of uh, interest-only loans increased to 19.2% of of new loans written from 18.5% in the September quarter. We did see an increase in um, loan-to-income ratios and debt-to-income ratios of greater than six times one's income. So those things did tick up, but just not to a portion that is considered to be excessively risky at this point. And the messaging from APRA in their report that came with this data was really clear that they had no concerns yet, but they would be keeping an eye on things. So yeah, it's it's the increase in prices is not a function of a risky um, housing lending space at the moment. <laughs> it just feels risky for all the buyers out there. <laughs> <laughs> what we were starting to see is that uh, through conversations with BDMs, with lenders and chatting to sort of credit assessors at banks, um, 
is we were able to potentially put in higher risk sort of loans. And what that means is that uh, not we don't do the the high low LVR like low deposit home loans. We just mm. all our clients have usually got a ten percent deposit, if not more. Um, and so we don't do those ninety five percent loans as a business. So we don't really see much of that space. That's really prolific in the house and land package area. Um, and so if they do put restrictions on that, that's where it'll really hurt because a lot of those buyers are you know a good portion are using you know, 95% loans, but we do do a lot of loans with, with high average, with high multiples of income. So six or seven um, times income. And, uh, you know, these are people with sort of high trajectory of income in the future as well. Mm. So they, you know, it's six or seven times their income today, but that doesn't mean it'll be six or seven times their income in three or four years time, let's say. Um, and, and banks were saying to us, look, yeah, maybe we'll do seven times. Maybe we'll even do up to eight times if you've got a decent deposit. Um, that's all stopped so they were allowing us to kind of lodge those deals. Um, but I think there's something happening behind the scenes because mm. they've kind of reversed those decisions and they've actually started communicating the other way and said anything over seven times is now going to get scrutinised. And so I feel like it's, it's the banks already know the writing's on the wall a little bit because they've tried to reverse what they were doing and now they're sort of trying to, you know, reduce these sort of high multiple loans um, really over six times. So... I think it's something that we'll definitely have to keep watching. That's but I, I do feel like it's already happening. And was that through the start of 2021? Uh, so, yeah, start of 2021, we were, the BDMs were saying to us, look, you know, you can potentially do these loans at these multiples. There you um, go. And we're changing policy to we're going to go to eight times, um, you know, if you've got a 20 or 30% deposit. And so, you know, that, that means that you've got more borrowing capacity, which means you can go to the market and spend more money. And so that was yeah. really does drive prices a lot. But just even this week, you know, one of the big four came out and said, oh, anything over seven times we don't want anymore. Um, and, who, and who's to say that doesn't just drop to six times uh, because APRA step in? So I do think it's something mm, they will mm-hmm. do because, you know, it, it allows people to sort of leverage up their income a lot. And if that's if you've got a trajectory of your income rising, maybe that's okay. But if you uh, potentially no late wage growth, um, potentially something happens to your job, then you could get yourself into a bit of problems, which is what they want to sort of avoid. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. So let's go back to the pain and gain report. I was looking through the September one, and I haven't read September yet because it hasn't been released. So, but so you're giving us a little sneak pe- uh, sneak preview in this chat. Perth and Darwin were interesting in September because mm. they were still the highest proportion of loss making sales, but the pace had slowed, and and that makes me think maybe the the pain and gain report is a bit of a lead indicator because I'm. You know, I, I'm guessing that maybe that there's been quite a difference in the December data for those two cities. Is there? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. So um, particularly in yeah Perth and Darwin, we still see that they have very elevated levels of loss-making sales, but the incidence of profitability across house sales for the December quarter increased five percentage points across Perth. So that's sitting at around 77% now. As we discussed, less than half of unit sales across Perth made a profit, but the percentage of profit-making sales increased by 3.5 percentage points. Um, And similarly across Darwin, we saw, I mean, Darwin's a little more volatile. Um, We saw a bit of a decline in the house-making profits, but we saw a sharp increase in unit profitability of almost eight percentage points. Wow. So still pretty low, uh, around 35% of units were making a profit in resale across Darwin in the December quarter. And ultimately, the elevated level of loss-making sales comes from the fact that uh, I, I think it's the extent of the downturn So because the Darwin and Perth markets saw a turn in early 2020, their values started to increase off the back of these very long and large declines, it's only more recent buyers that would probably be seeing um, profits at this stage. Mm. Or if you've been sitting in the Darwin unit market, that's still 40% below its peak value, which was back in May 2010. So people who have had these very long hold periods and are selling may still incur a nominal loss on their property. And that's where we do see that the typical hold periods across um, Perth and Darwin are a lot longer. So uh, over 14 years for um, profit-making units was the typical hold period. And typical hold period for profit-making houses in Perth was over 11 years. So that's painful, right? You know, so it's not going to be pain for, uh, and that's why I guess your 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 reports are nicely titled, I guess, um, because there is a lot of pain, right? So that's fourteen years of a decision that, and and we've all got a behavioural bias is we don't want to lose money, and so uh, and sell it at a loss, it's loss aversion, and so there's also an anchoring bias that we want to get back what we've sort of put in, Um, and we're happy just to walk away as long as we're dollar, we win by a dollar, I guess, Um, and so. I like seeing that these numbers are really shooting up because, you know, mm-hmm. I do feel like we've had lots of clients who have had units in different cities, not so much Darwin, but definitely in Perth and Brisbane um, who have had apartments and and really get stuck and don't know what to do. And as soon as prices rise or, or potentially rise, I, I do think you'll find that a lot of people want to fix that pain, right, and just get over those decisions. So mm. they're going to hold them. And as soon as they can potentially just walk away, um, they will. But I don't think that's going to happen in Darwin for some time, it sounds like. No, I mean, I think the market will be still buoyed over 2021. I'd expect it price increases to continue because you've got those broad factors like record low mortgage rates, but then also this, um, you know, a recovery in in the resources sector. Commodity prices are mm, booming at the yeah. moment. Mining projects are picking up. Um, and we're also seeing now with the rollout of the vaccine an ease in interstate borders. So that could support tourism across Darwin. Um, I think there are some, I, I think there is a bit more of a positive outlook for the rest of 2021, but it, it may still be years before people can recuperate some of the value that's been lost. It's actually, it's really heartbreaking. We've had many, you know, conversations around this not just in in these two cities, but just generally where people do lose money and then they they want to avoid realising that loss and so therefore 
they wait and then they don't realise that there's a loss in terms of opportunity costs over that time. But I find the, um, you know, the how long you hold, because obviously that's something you measure in this report, is interesting. You know, the median period for losses in both houses and units in regional Queensland, for instance, is 9.3 years. So that means that people are holding yeah. on to, to properties for nearly 10 years and finally giving up and still se- selling at a loss. Um, yeah. And units in regional South Australia and WA both exceeded 10 years. And so, but that's, that's, um, when you look at the time it takes to make a gain mm. uh, or the average, I shouldn't say, it's not the time it takes to make a gain, it's the average whole period of gain of um, yeah, correct. properties yeah. that made a gain. Yeah. It's not that different, is it? No, no. I mean, I think the thing about regional Queensland is that it's a very diverse market as well. When we talk Mm. about regional Queensland, we're talking about anything that isn't Brisbane. So you might see (laughs) uh, (laughs) some of the, um, you know, North Coast where there have been severe weather weather events taking value out of, um, uh, you know, Townsville and and regions like that. Uh, You've got houses on the Sunshine Coast, which would probably hold a lot more value versus high density um, uh, unit markets. Uh, So it is a very diverse story. And that's a very good point to make is that this is not necessarily a hold period that's prompted by a, uh, you know, oh, it's been held for enough time and now we'll we'll sell. It, It could just be the fact that these properties are owned by owner-occupiers who have found it, it's time for them to sell, it's time for them to move on, and, and they've happened to um, make a profit based on longer hold periods. Um, so, it, yeah, it, it's true that in, in some instances it's not um, as much the, um, you know, there's not as much of a difference between the typical loss and, and profit-making sales. You know, so people looking to make decisions based on, a well, you know, property is a long game, so you just have to hold it long enough. It's like, well, actually, it doesn't necessarily ring true. <laughs> You've got to yeah. sort of really get into this. Um, but there's also, and one of the one of the fundamentals that, you know, so that you've got some fundamentals that sort of come across every time you do these reports, right, and that is that, that whole period that the, you know, typically it is longer to hold a house, to, sorry, hold a property to make a gain than it is to make a loss. Um, but also the uh, investors tend to, potentially knee-jerk a little bit quicker so the investor loss is higher than the owner-occupier loss. How do you measure that? Uh, Well, we have an indicator for occupant type of property. So if the occupant is a renter, then we can assume that it's an investment Uh property versus um, owner-occupied. And then we can just split up the individual uh, resale results um, as to whether it was that occupant type. And pretty reliably, we see that uh, owner-occupied properties see a higher uh, rate of profitability. And in the December quarter, that was 92% of owner-occupiers made a nominal gain on the resale of property compared to 85% of uh, investors. So then one of the interesting I've noticed with your report is that uh, Hobart, you know, it's been in the headlines for for some years now in terms of the growth down there and, um, you know, a lot of it's you know, been quite sustainable, surprisingly, you know, and it's still done perform quite well through 2020. But the unit market down there just hasn't really diverged from the housing market. And I think that's a, when you look at every other sort of city that the units, you know, percentage of loss making sales is rising. Um, but, you know, Hobart hasn't. Do you, what do you think is happening down there where units are still selling at a profit 
when everyone else isn't? I'd put that down to relatively low levels of supply. We just don't see the kind of volume of, of development and response to increased prices in terms of supply that we have across other cities. Mm. Um, part of that may be due to limitations around land or, or zoning or whatever. Um, but yeah, we, we just have not seen, it, it's still a relatively small city. Um, and, and the supply hasn't responded to the increase in uh, interest in that market. I guess that's one thing that investors uh, need to be a bit cautious of um, because, <laughs> you know, that's a leading indicator on a lot of things is when you look at other cities and what has happened. And, you know, I think there will be people doing new, de- new apartment mm. developments, say, in Hobart, and people go, I want to buy in Hobart. Oh, can't can't get a house. It's too hard at auction or too hard to buy a house. Why don't I just buy one of those new apartments and, you uh, you know, and I think that's unfortunately the writing's on the wall for a lot of those. So generally speaking, you know, there's there's the fundamentals that you see every time you bring out these reports, and I think we've touched on most of them. Are there any that we haven't touched on, the sort of the, the patterns that you see, you know, year in or quarter in, quarter out? I mean, I think the trends that I've seen have, have largely been, um, yeah, Hobart leading profitability, the relative uh, profitability for owner occupiers tends to be higher. Longer hold periods are associated with greater profit, and houses are also associated with with higher levels of profit. Um, as you say, there are exceptions to that. I think it's interesting, even looking at the typical hold period. Um, you know, I've I've started incorporating these graphs around the typical or the median return by um, years held. Uh, so mm. for properties resold in the December quarter, properties held for 30 years or more have seen these nominal gains of uh, around 660,000. Um, but what's interesting is that if you look at the bracket of um, properties held for four to six years, the median return was 120,000. So in terms of nominal gain per year, um, the returns are actually quite a bit higher, which I thought was interesting. It's like mm. there is a bit of savviness in in the timing of some of these resales. But, um, you know, if you're buying a property to live in and it's not something you're really thinking about, then that that longer time in the market has certainly paid off anyway. Ooh, so you're you're suggesting that trading in the property market <laughs> might pay off. That's that's a challenging that's challenging. Well, one of I mean, my obviously, it, it, it depends a lot on um, it depends a lot on the individual circumstance, and obviously, property has high transaction costs, so yeah. it might not be beneficial to only hold for a relatively short period of time. But I thought from a a market perspective, the most mm. commonly held bracket that we see here is this whole period of four to six years. Mm. And that's got a relatively high return of nominal gain per year, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. And maybe that includes flippers though, where they're actually renovating. Oh yeah, that's um, true. Yeah. That mm. could be the case. Yeah. Cause they would, they'd be short term sales cycles. Um, yeah. Interesting stuff though. So what about, what are the unique factors that we're seeing post in this sort of COVID world? Anything that sort of challenges or you think it's changing some of those fundamentals? I mean, the Perth and Darwin recoveries, I think, Mm. have been 
quite mm. surprising. Not the fact that they finally turned, but just the extent to which they've turned, um, mm. which might even see higher levels of profitability for recent purchases in those markets. Yeah. Um, and I mean, if anything, I think COVID maybe has seen us double down on some of the fundamentals, like the house unit um, dynamic, for example. Units have just been there. There are signals in pricing, in sales volumes, and even now in the development pipeline that 2020 was definitely the year of the house. Um, it's it still seems to be continuing along that trajectory through the start of 2021, um, with house values vastly outperforming units across each of the capital city markets. So I, I'm not sure that we'll see uh, enormous change. Maybe, uh, I was going to say maybe in the regionals versus capitals, but even then, looking at the most recent quarter, the capital city markets are catching up now yep. and the rate yep. of profitability increased at a faster rate than than across the regions uh, through the December quarter. And, you know, that, that may not be sustained either in the regions, so we'll wait and see what happens there. For sure. We've noticed that on the ground. A lot of the uh, buyers who would have gone to, say, north of Wollongong or Central Coast or even, you know, were considering places like Bowral, et cetera, um, a lot of those, or, or even Byron, we've had clients who have potentially uh, really wanted to do that. They've gone up and looked at properties. It's too hard to buy. Prices have moved a lot. Um, they're not actually that much cheaper to what they want in Sydney. It's a little bit of a safer option just to buy where they are today and sort of make this big lifestyle change. And so... There's not a tangible sort of you can get a much better property, let's say, um, and it's I can actually make it happen. Then people go for the safe option, and so a lot of people are back buying in the cities. That's what we've sort of sort of seen happen. Mm. As head of research, Eliza, what, what are some of the things you're sort of you know dipping your toes in that are, are coming? You know, what what are some of the things you really want to watch in 2021 and are doing a bit more sort of research into? I really want to look at the shift in the job market. Um, there's some pretty good data from the ABS around the um, number of people working in different industries um, and uh, by more granular geographic area. And I just want to see how that shifted. Um, mm. We saw a very strong relationship between the portion of people working in tourism, hospitality and the arts and the impact that that's had on the rental market, given those industries were more affected by COVID-19 and more people working in those industries were more likely to rent. Um, what's so interesting is that we've seen an enormous decline in in, in rental markets. Like it's, it's just incredible how inner city Melbourne rents, uh, you know, if you look at the um, inner city sort of LGA region, we're talking like 20% declines in rental values uh, across the whole of Melbourne. Rent values are down about 8% over the year. And yet, even though international borders haven't reopened and tourism, hospitality and the arts are still fairly weak, mm. those unit markets are starting to stabilise rents are starting to flatten out, prices are starting to come back up. Um, so I'll be keen to just investigate that problem and say, like, what is happening there? Why is it stabilising? Um, not sure if you have any ideas, <laughs> if you're seeing anything on the ground, but uh, I, I was wondering if maybe it's something to do with activity resuming across the CBD or 
um, maybe the fact that mortgage repayment deferrals have, have been in place to the end of March and, and potentially further. We haven't seen as many forced sales, which has helped to stabilise the mm. market. Maybe there's more going back on Airbnb. Yeah, that's a possibility as interstate borders reopen as well. Um, yeah. But it is unusual, isn't it? I mean, just sort of some of it, you just look at it and think, oh, my God, like mm-hmm. will it ever recover? Yeah. In certain areas, it's just like so many for lease, you know, when you look online, so many for lease, so many for rent in certain areas as for well. For sure. Oh, sorry, for, um, for sale. Mm. Um, I also want to see the detailed internal migration data through 2020. Um, the end How of many this... people have moved to Brisbane? Is that what you want to know? <laughs> yeah, and, and even, you know, the, the more granular data where you, you can look at the SA2s and that'll come out at the end of this month, but it'll only be up to June 2020. So we'll see mm. how movements changed amid the worst of the pandemic. Um, and I think, yeah, there's a few... I think one that you've inspired um, me to do, Veronica, is looking at, uh, you know, the the kinds of properties that are making these these loss-making sales, particularly in the unit segment. Um, So we've been investigating a flag for the year built for some of these units. Yes. Um, I thought you'd like that. So looking at an average um, of of the portion of loss-making sales by year built, it looks like the highest concentration at the moment is sitting at around Mm. 2012. Um, Mm. I'm not sure if that resonates, but definitely um, post-2010 seems to be some of the higher incidences of loss-making unit sales. Wow. Um, So, yeah, there's plenty of data to dig into. I just cannot wait to carve out some time to do it. <laughs> <laughs> We've also got the um, the census this year, haven't we? So that's that's always a bit of a goldmine for you, I guess. Absolutely. Um, that, that'll be really important and a really interesting snapshot of a kind of, I don't know if it's too early to say post-COVID. <laughs> yeah, probably. Just COVID. Touch wood, yeah. The world of COVID. Oh, God. Does the government actually speak to CoreLogic though? I mean, um, Obviously, you've got access to, you know, what agents are doing, you know, lending, you know, uh, lots of different data points that I'm sure they want to get access to. Are they, are they actually speaking to you and saying, look, yeah. let it help us better understand the market? Or Chris, is, or I've is that got sort the of Prime Minister just calling me like every day. <laughs> um, no, I mean, we, we definitely support, we have government clients and support government agencies in um, developing insights that help inform policies, uh, Mm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And what about this sort of the (laughs) speed of the market, sort of the velocity behind it? I mean, they, you know, they looking at your data around that, you know, is there any sort of inkling you can sort of give us that they might be doing something there? Oh, um, no, I wouldn't have a view as to whether it would inform macro prudential or anything like that, Um, for example. um, But like I say, I think that's probably going to come down more to banking data and indications of of risk. Um, What I would say is uh, just over the past few days, we've started to see a bit of a slowdown in the acceleration of the Sydney growth rate. So looking at the daily index, the Sydney market has just seen extraordinary growth in the past 28 days of about 3.5%, which is huge. Uh, yeah, <laughs> for for a twenty eight day period, right? So mm. that that looks like it's starting to ease off just a little bit. So mm. that says to me, I mean, look, that could just be a temporary thing too. But I think 
that the Sydney market might hit kind of affordability constraints and um, and that growth rate would start to slow a little, which might be a bit of a relief to some people who are who are looking to buy at the moment. Yes, it's got to hit that the elastic has got to stretch out at some mm. point. Have you got a Dumbo for us, Eliza? So I was thinking about this. I'm like, I Excellent. need a Dumbo. <laughs> um, and I know I've been on the show a few times now, so I'm not sure if I've talked about something like this before. Um, but I do want to talk about my friends who shall remain nameless, who are moving from a pretty loose rental market in the inner West to Glebe. And mm. they uh, have had to take on a higher level of rent, thinking it would be worthwhile for a shorter commute to the city. And also they were after a bigger place to, um, you know, facilitate family when they come and visit and things like that. But Mm. their commute is just as long to the city from their previous uh, rental because of the nature of transport in the area. (laughs) So I thought that was a little, (laughs) a little Dumbo. I love Um, it. So so on that, (laughs) can you tell us what suburb they were in before? Um, they were in Marrickville. So, okay, so they would have got the train before. Exactly. So and the there commute is no train is... in Glebe. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> um, a bus or a light rail or feet. Exactly. And especially with the weather as it is at the moment, you know, that slows down a lot of the road transport and, and things mm. like that. So, yeah, I think better better to stick to the trains and the cheaper rents. Having said that, I'd say the Marrickville market's probably tightening up a little bit now. But, um, yeah, the, there was a period at the onset of the pandemic where inner west um, rents were quite cheap. Mm, yeah. So there you go. It's a, it's a good point, actually, because sometimes you think that uh, logically that somewhere closer to the city is faster to get to the city than it is uh, mm. potentially further away. But, you know, there's express buses, say, in the you know, lower North Shore, like the B-line in the beaches. Um, and when you look at the actual time frames on that, uh, is potentially a lot quicker than, say, other areas that are, you know, even closer to the city. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting where, you know, sometimes the, the commute when you do the numbers in different areas is, is much faster, especially with this potential metro that's happening in Sydney as well mm. over the next five years. So, um, yeah, don't, don't just always buy closer thinking it's going to be you know, Yeah, I just think with the nature of road congestion in Sydney in mm. particular, uh, you, it, the the trains are really good so long as there's not track work, right? But yeah. <laughs> yeah, then you're stuck on a bus, love. <laughs> that is so interesting because um, on my other podcast, which is Your First Home Buyer Guide, interviewed Kate Bacos. We just wanted to know about regional um, parts of regional uh, Victoria, so we were talking mm. about Geelong and Ballarat, and she was saying that in Geelong, like, so there's a really good train service to Melbourne, but the suburbs south on the south side of Geelong um, are better to buy in for a number of reasons. But one of those reasons is because you will always get a seat on the train. So if you're oh, going to wow. be on an hour-long train commute, but by the time they get to the northern suburbs of Geelong, it's full and you have to stand for an entire hour on a train. Oh. <laughs> and oh, I mean, there's a little bad. Tra- Trap for young players, isn't it? But, you know, so <laughs> logic would say, okay, get get closer to Melbourne, but the actuality, the actual, um, you know, how, how, how it in terms of livability going further away is actually better because it's an easier commute. So there yeah. you go. Yeah, and I guess everyone's got different preferences. Like if you are working from home, that that wouldn't even be a problem, right? Mm. But, um, yeah, I, I, it, it is interesting. 
That only backfires though on the way back though. If you don't get a seat, it means you've got to you stay got further on to stand. longer. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> But, um, oh, but assuming a lot of people will probably jump off before that, so you get your seat. That's that exactly right. Eventually. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Eliza. We always love it when you come and join us and obviously uh, particularly love it when you're talking about the pain and gain data because that's always quite fascinating. Will you join us in three more months with the next lot? Absolutely. Why not? Thanks <laughs> Thank for you. having me. <laughs> Thanks, Eliza. Cheers. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is... Well, you know how much I love the pain and gain report and and I don't know, maybe it's because I'm a bit perverse, but the, the reality is it basically speaks the truth. It is what it is. You know, these are properties that sold and, and they're nominal gains or losses, but um, well, all losses are losses, but the nominal gains, are some, some of those are losses as well because the costs aren't included. But at the end of the day, there's a couple of things that lead you to buy a property and then lose money. One is, is what you buy. I mean, when you buy can have an impact, but it's vastly less of the problem than what you buy. So obviously, if you're going to buy a property at the peak of the market, and, and many people did at the you know height of the last boom, say in the, the first months of 2017, and if they're in a situation where they were forced to sell in within the next downturn of the, the following couple of years, then there's a higher chance they were going to lose money. In fact, I did a, I did a, a blog on this. I tracked quite a lot of these properties and, and the majority did lose money in that period of time. And that's about timing because they bought at the peak and in order to buy at the peak, you have to pay a premium. And of course, before the peak, nobody knows when the peak is going to you know, occur and it's going to occur at some point of time. And so if you're a bit unlucky with your timing and then you're unlucky compounded on that is that you have to sell within a short period of time during a downturn, then then high probability you're going to make a loss. But that's not the main reason people lose money in property. The main reason people lose property is because they buy a poor asset in the first place. And I think that that's carried out in some of these long hold periods where people have sold after nine, 10 years and still lost money. And so it comes back to that asset selection about, and I guess too, the other thing too that I I hear is this investors losing money um, at a higher rate than owner-occupiers. And of course, that's because they're probably more likely to sell the property and the owner-occupiers enjoying it and living in it. And there's a benefit in that. Um, But for investors to lose money in such high proportion, what does that say about the reasons and the education and the decision-making around their investment. You know, they're, they're clearly investing in properties that aren't investments, you know what I mean? And this, as we've talked about many, many times, we have talked about, you know, the spruikers and the wishful thinking and all, and all the, uh, the, the, the way in which uh, data is used in order to encourage people to go and invest in property, but it's not really investing, it's just helping developers move stock. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the pain and gain report, I think it should have a 10% uh, cost sort of attached to the purchase. Mm. So if you purchase something at 500, you are not making a profit unless you sell it for more than 550. And I think that would completely change the report. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the numbers would move dramatically uh, downwards. And you can already see that in the report because you can see how much profit is the median profit. Mm. And you can then sort of reverse engineer it and say, well, if that's the median of the profit, then, um, yeah, it shows that a lot of people aren't making much money at all. So I think the biggest thing is the pain, is the time. Uh, you know, I've had clients who have had properties well over 10 years and, um, you know, they purchased it maybe mid-2000s and they're selling it, you know, 15 years later and it's, you know, still losing money or it's nothing, made no money and they've been funding a negative cash flow and, 
you know, they kind of go back and you never want to sort of say, well, if you did buy this property 15 years ago. And so what they're losing is not just money, it's time. And then it's also potentially now they're too late for buying something else and have to buy another poor asset. And they could have afforded a better asset back when they first purchased. So um, there's all these all knock-on effects. Um, same as buying your first home. You know, a lot of people go and they buy something and think, oh, it doesn't really matter. I want to live in it. Well, it has a matter in three or four years' time when you want to upgrade. And it has a matter in 10 years' time because that you weren't able to upgrade. And then in 20 or 30 years' time, it's all these knock-on sort of longer-term effects that people just don't think through. They're just thinking about the here and now. Yeah, and, you know, it's heartbreaking, but it, it really does come back to just thinking, okay, if I'm going to invest in property, I need to actually get a gain and the rent is not enough and I need to focus on what gives capital gain. And so it, it's really I just think the message is loud and clear, just avoid new because if you want to make money, then avoid new. And the, the, the data is there to support that that call. And and I know that some people have actually commented on uh, <laughs> that, yeah, yeah, we get it, we hear it, and so I won't labour the point any further. But I will, you know, I was recently listening back to the uh, episode we did with Andrew Wilson, who's an economist, a property economist. <laughs> You're brave. <laughs> I, actually, it is an I, – I don't encourage anyone to listen to it, um, and not because – it, you know, he was, we had a big argument <laughs> with him. So listen to it if you like a big argument. It's actually hard to listen to, and I'm actually a bit surprised myself at that because I don't mind a, I don't mind a spirited discussion. I really don't. But he he was just making outrageous claims about you can't basically saying you can't lose, and you know, and and this. Pain and gain report is the evidence that you can and even the evidence, you know, that, and I'm loving the fact that Eliza's going to look further into the new story and the resale of new, sto- uh, new stock because it, it is a story that needs to be told and it, it, particularly for um, first home buyers, it's something that I, I really, really, really just fear for them uh, falling for uh, the, the new dream, the new story. So. So I haven't listened to that episode again um, and I don't even think I really listened to the full episode when it was released because I was, uh, you know, not a fan of some of the things that were being said, I guess. Um, From memory though, I think a lot of what he was saying is that a lot of the apartments are going to do quite well because of 5% deposits and et cetera and sector. And yes, the pandemic was not sort of, uh, you know, no one, so it's a white sort of a a black swan event, you Mm. know, no one's really predicting it, but Ultimately, the fundamentals just got shown, right? Yeah. Lack of lack of demand, investor centric, yep. um, and increasing supply. And so, um, yeah, if you're following that sort of advice back then, they're some of the people who got burnt the most through this last last year. And so, um, yeah, you've got to be very careful, sort of taking that uh, ultra property bull approach. Yeah. Please join us for our next episode when we're discussing the future direction of valuations with Shelley Horton from CoreLogic. Now, there are a lot of myths around property evaluations, like the belief that bank vows are always low or that a valuation is what a property is actually worth. The thing is, evaluations serve a purpose in the property industry and understanding what that purpose is and how they come about and how it all fits into the whole scheme of things is what we discuss in our next episode. Very important, particularly in a rising market, when valuations can lag behind actual sale prices. We'll explain all next week. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets reach out via my website gooddeeds.com.au if you're looking to buy your first home 
thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.